Good morning, everyone. Happy 4th of July. Happy 247th birthday of the United States of America. And there is a lot of news on this 4th of July. Adi Cornish is here with me. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Let's get started with five things to know on this holiday Tuesday. Five people are dead and two children are injured, including a toddler after police say a man with a bulletproof vest and an AR-15 style weapon carried out a mass shooting in the streets of Philadelphia. This morning, a suspect is in custody and police are looking for a motive. Also new this morning, Russia claims Ukraine attacked Moscow with five drones. The Russian Defense Ministry says it intercepted them, calling it a terrorist attack. Kiev has yet to respond. Also a new challenge over how Harvard admits students. This time, the university's legacy admissions program faces a civil rights complaint. Lawyers claim the program overwhelmingly benefits white applicants. This just days after the Supreme Court gutted affirmative action in college admissions. And Republican presidential candidates are marking America's big birthday by reaching out to its voters. Mike Pence, Tim Scott, Ron DeSantis, and more storming the key early battleground states of Iowa and New Hampshire. And there are several storms, high heat, putting cookouts nationwide at stake. Americans brace for extreme weather coast to coast. CNN This Morning starts right now. And we're going to start this morning with breaking news out of Fort Worth, Texas, where police now say eight people are injured and two are dead after a mass shooting at a Fourth of July celebration. No one is in custody right now. We're still getting details on that mass shooting, but we are already turning to another mass shooting overnight. This one out of Philadelphia. Police say at least five people are now dead. Two are injured after a heavily armed gunman wearing a bulletproof vest opened fire on the city streets. Investigators say the suspect had an AR-15 style rifle, a handgun, a police scanner, and multiple magazines of ammo packed in his body armor when police officers arrested him in an alley. We're going to start this morning with Danny Freeman. He's live outside Philadelphia Police Headquarters. And Danny, it's horrifying in terms of the details that we know so far. What more are we learning about the suspect? Well, Phil, to be perfectly honest, we're not learning that much more about the suspect this morning. Police have confirmed to us, of course, there is one primary suspect. He's in his 40s. He was taken into custody last night, and he was wearing body armor and carrying multiple guns, as you just said. But police still asking the question themselves at this point, why did he open fire last night? But, Phil, I want to talk about what we do know about this shooting. Basically, this all started on 8.30 last night. Philadelphia police got a call regarding multiple gunshot victims in the Kingston neighborhood that's in southwest Philadelphia. When officers arrived, they found multiple gunshot victims, but then they also heard more gunshots. And Philadelphia Police Commissioner Daniel Outlaw described officers basically chasing the sound of gunshots and the ultimate gunman through uh, several blocks of this neighborhood late last evening. Ultimately, they were able to find the gunman, apprehend him without firing a shot. But I want you to take a listen to what Police Commissioner Outlaw said at uh, when that moment came when they apprehended this suspect. Our officers were able to apprehend the male in the rear alley of 1600 Fraser Street. And when they did, uh, this male was wearing a bulletproof vest with multiple magazines in the vest. He also had a scanner and an AR style rifle and a handgun underneath his body. He was taken into custody uh, without further incident. 
Now, Phil, Commissioner Daniel Outlaw also initially said there were six victims, four who died and two of the other injured were children. But then we learned overnight police discovered a fifth uh, uh, excuse me, a seventh victim, a fifth person who was killed. Basically, a man came out of his apartment while police were out canvassing certain areas of that neighborhood and said someone inside is also dead. And police told us overnight that that was related to this shooting. And Phil, I just want to say there actually was a second person taken in the custody that the police commissioner said picked up a gun and started returning fire at the gunman. But that's not the, again, primary suspect in this case. And one thing uh, I'll add as well, I just want to bear in mind, this is a large crime scene. Phil, there were more than 50 shell casings on the ground when police got on scene last night. Again, we're going to be looking for updates today as this story develops. But that's the latest from here in Philadelphia. Phil. All right. Keep us posted on this update. Updates, Danny Freeman. Thanks so much. Now, new signs of the Ukrainian counteroffensive unfold this morning near Moscow. That's where Russia claims it intercepted five Ukrainian drones. And while there are no immediate reports of casualties or damage, Russia is offering a fairly powerful description of the encounter, calling it a, quote, thwarted terrorist attack. CNN's Bed Wiedemann is live in eastern Ukraine. And first, what have you heard from Kiev? How are, is Ukraine responding? Well, Kiev is responding with a certain amount of sarcasm, given it that the Russian, the foreign ministry, the Russian foreign ministry spokeswoman, Maria Zakharova, is saying that this was a case of international terrorism. We just got a statement from an advisor to the Ukrainian president that says the Russian foreign ministry should realize that a terrorist attack is when you have been deliberately firing cruise and ballistic missiles at residential areas and crowded pizzerias for 16 months. So certainly... Obviously, the Ukrainians aren't going to accept responsibility for this incident in Moscow, but certainly it is somewhat ironic that Russia, a country that has launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine since February of last year, is complaining about a few drones over Moscow. Now, according to the information we have, there were five drones in the Moscow, the Moscow metropolitan area. Four of them were brought down by air defenses, one by electronic warfare means. Now, as a result of these drones, which didn't cause any damage or uh, injury to people, uh, the 14 flights at one of the four airports in Moscow were diverted. That according to the TASS news agency. And of course, it's important to keep in mind, this isn't the first time that Drones of unknown origin have been sighted over Moscow. In May, there was an incident where, in fact, one drone, the Kremlin claimed, uh, exploded over the Kremlin itself. The Russians alleged that it was an assassination attempt against Vladimir Putin. Audi. The context for this, of course, is the counteroffensive that Ukraine has been running the last couple of weeks. So are we looking at retaliation or is there a possibility this is part of that effort? It's hard to say this. The Ukrainians have been involved without a source of knowing whether they were behind today's incident in Moscow. Uh, but they have done a variety of things that are aimed to sort of undermine public confidence uh, in the ability of Moscow to actually run the country. So, for instance, there have been cross-border incursions into Russia. There have been regular drone 
attacks on across the border in areas in southern Russia. And therefore, this is really more than anything part of a psychological warfare effort against the Russians. It goes back quite some time. So it's hard to say whether this is part of the counteroffensive, but it's definitely an attempt to just shake the confidence of the Russian public in their leadership. Ben Wiedemann, thank you. All right, well, this morning we're firmly in the shake hands, kiss babies, eat high-calorie local delicacies portion of the Republican primary. Ron DeSantis, Mike Pence, Tim Scott, other GOP presidential hopefuls, they're all hitting the campaign trail on this 4th of July, and that's also where we find our own Omar Jimenez. He's in Merrimack, New Hampshire, where three candidates are set to participate in the same parade. I hope they're not all on the same float. Omar, where is the kind of Republican feel going to be throughout the course of the day? (laughs) Yeah, Phil. I mean, look, if there was ever a doubt that we're in campaign season, you look no further than parades with presidential candidates all at the same parade. And that's what we're going to see today here in New Hampshire and Merrimack once it gets going uh, behind me a little bit later today. We will see uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, former Texas Congressman Will Hurd, uh, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, and more once this actually gets going to celebrate the 4th of July, but also campaign. What's more American than that? Now, others like former President uh, Donald Trump, they're expected to at least have a campaign presence here is what they say. We'll see what that actually means uh, when this happens. And in that other important early contest state in Iowa, we're expecting to see former Vice President Mike Pence and former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson there. You know, Omar, I think one of the questions I have, and obviously it's still early, there's still a lot of time left, everybody's still kind of figuring out what their lane is or what their pathways are at this point. When you're talking to campaign officials, when you're talking to voters on the ground, is the vibe right now that it's kind of Trump versus everybody. Is there any sense, I think perhaps more importantly, that the indictments have actually uh, hindered the significant front runner at all? Well, a lot of what we've seen from some of the voters and, of course, some of the polling is that it is at this point Trump versus the rest of the pack. Recent CNN polling, it had uh, former President Trump at 47 percent. And even the spokesperson for uh, the pro DeSantis uh, super PAC never backed down is admitting that they feel DeSantis is way behind in polling, but still winnable. Take a listen to that spokesman on a factor that he thinks is making a key difference here. Clearly, Donald Trump is the is the runaway front runner, uh, particularly since the indictments. That was not the case before the indictments. It is the case afterwards. And it is understandable that a lot of folks want to rally to him. And after former President Trump's most recent indictment down in Florida over the alleged mishandling of classified documents, I came out here to New Hampshire and I tried to speak to some of his supporters to see if this actually made any sort of impact on them. It only seemed to embolden them. And it seems at least that trend is what that uh, super PAC spokesman was alluding to. That said, as you mentioned, it's still very early in this campaign season. And it's why candidates like some of those that I mentioned are out on the campaign trail. In places like here in Merrimack, New Hampshire, some of those early contest uh, states for the upcoming primaries uh, early next year to try and make some inroads there. And then, of course, a very important tentpole for a lot of these candidates is who makes it onto the debate stage come August. Hey, Omar, I have a very important final question um, that you weren't aware I was going to ask, but I just have to ask. 
uh, as a former campaign correspondent, how is your shirt wrinkle-free? How are you doing? Like, that's amazing that you look this well put together at 6 a.m. on the campaign trail. Is there a secret here? Look, look, you just keyed into a super huge tip where it's, I have to wake up 30 minutes early to do this because it, 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 this is not how it came out of the suitcase. It was wrinkled. <laughs> okay, good. That makes me feel better. That makes me feel better. You know how that is. Yeah, I do. I yeah. do. And I appreciate that hustle. Omar Jimenez, yeah. live for us in New Hampshire. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> Okay, it will be mostly dry across the country this July 4th. Still, severe storms in some areas could put a damper on your holiday get-togethers. And record temperatures are bringing dangerous heat for both coasts and the south. We're going to go to meteorologist Britley Ritz. Uh, Britley, I'm describing basically hot, sticky, and stormy for some people. So (laughs) tell us, who is going to suffer? The plains and across the south, Audi. And this is something we really need to focus on because it's during a time frame where a lot of us are probably going to be out and about grilling with friends and family or even waiting for the fireworks celebrations to start. So pay attention here to these areas in red across the plains, the south and right up the east coast. Areas highlighted in yellow where we're most vulnerable, that area in orange. Damaging wind and hail are biggest threats, but areas in green can also pick up that same threats later on into the afternoon hour. So let's go ahead and take a look at the northeast four o'clock anywhere between four and nine o'clock where we're dealing with some of these strongest storms again not a washout just pay attention to radar before you head out and about the southeast doing the same four o'clock through about nine o'clock seeing these areas popping up especially down through louisiana and mississippi and along the gulf coast where we're really heavily focused on the northern plains late afternoon and into the evening hours the central plains as well back into parts of the great lakes so you're seeing these areas fire up right ahead of the warm front about nine to ten o'clock and not only that but the heat some of these temperatures soaring well over 90 degrees just make sure we're drinking plenty of water as we're going out and about too in between that beverage of choice Adi. <laughs> Britley Ritz, thanks so much. And everyone, uh, please hydrate with your beverage of choice because CNN's July 4th special returns with an all-star lineup. Watch CNN's The Fourth in America Live tonight at 7 Eastern on CNN. Well, coming up, we've got new video from the West Bank. It shows empty streets. You can see it there and smoke-filled skies as Israel's military operation moves into its second day. We'll take you live to Jerusalem. Plus. He's still, he's struggling on the shoulder on the southbound lane going northbound. We're going over 80 miles an hour. See the moment officials chase down a semi going the wrong way on a busy highway. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, there are new details coming to light as the Israeli military operation in the West Bank enters its second day. Israel says it has detained at least 120 people in Jenin as it attempts to inspect at least 10 more targets in the Palestinian refugee camp, which is labeled as a, quote, hornet's nest for terrorist activity. At least 10 people were killed, nearly 100 others injured in what's being called Israel's largest defensive in the West Bank nearly two decades. CNN's Hadass Gold is live for us in Jerusalem. And Hadass, the big question now is we're kind of into the second day is, is where do things stand? Where does this go from here? 
Well, we are now in the second day, as you noted, of what's being called the largest military operation in the occupied West Bank by the Israeli military since 2002, since the days of the Second Intifada. And it's this is a massive operation. There have now been soldiers uh, working in Janine, raiding Janine, since 1 a.m. Monday morning. Now, last night, from what we're hearing, was a little bit less eventful than the night before, but the IDF saying that it has reached, quote, every corner of the refugee camp saying that they are continuing to target and destroy what they say are weapons manufacturing sites, explosive storage sites. They also say they've been finding situation operation rooms. The IDF says that they're essentially wanting to completely dismantle what they call is a safe haven for militants in the Janine refugee camp. But what that means is for the civilians of the Janine refugee camp, total chaos. The streets are completely, some, tw some 20 kilometers of the streets have been completely torn up as the IDF says that they are trying to identify and dismantle IEDs. The electricity and water has been affected. One resident who was there who says that she was holed up in her house for hours as Israeli snipers were working around them has called it akin to seeing a natural disaster had hit the refugee camp. We now know that the death toll stands at 10. The ages range from 16 to 23 years old. All of them are said to be males. Now, the Israeli military is still saying that no non-combatants have been killed, but they do acknowledge that among these some 100 people injured, civilians have been injured as well. We know that at least 20 of them are in serious condition. Now, the fallout, there's a general strike against uh, across the West Bank, so people are not working. Hamas has called on itself to strike all of Israel wherever they can. But the IDF saying that this operation will continue potentially for several more days. Phil. All right. Hadass Hold, Gold, keep us updated live from Jerusalem. Thanks so much. Now, CNN was actually able to get in contact with people who live in Janine, and a 16-year-old told us this. The IDF invaded our house in the early morning. They locked us all in one room. We were five women and two children in one room. And in another room, they locked five men, my father, brothers, and uncles. They took the house as snipers positioned to attack the camp. Meanwhile, we couldn't use a toilet, get to the kitchen, or do anything but sit in the room and listen to the explosions outside. Now, the teen also told CNN, quote, I never thought this can happen to us. I was shocked to see the destruction of the camp. Nothing is the same as it was. I want to now bring in retired U.S. Army Major Mike Lyons and Bloomberg editor and foreign affairs columnist Bobby Ghosh. Bobby, I want to start with you, because when you look at the dynamics right now, um, you obviously have the political situation in Israel. You uh, obviously have the long-running tensions, uh, some escalation uh, in uh, the West Bank that has been kind of uh, evolving and progressing over the course of the last several months, without question. But you also have significant weakness in the Palestinian Authority and the leadership. Um, how does this, and I'm not saying end, I'm saying how does this calm down? This feels like it's just moving towards another major, major blow up. It does feel like the new reality in the West Bank. We were, we've been unfortunately used to seeing these kinds of images from Gaza, but West Bank relative to Gaza was, was stable. The Palestinian Authority, as you say, its, its leadership has been weakening. Its ability to, to control the street has been, has been diminishing. Now, those images from Janine are very familiar to me. 20 years ago, the last time Israel mounted such a major operation within the West Bank, I was there in that camp covering that, the Battle of Janine. Um, the big difference now is that the Palestinians know that they're completely isolated in the world. Even their fellow uh, Arabs in other states are making separate deals with the Israelis. Not a lot of sympathy there for them. Uh, and Iran is taking advantage of this vacuum and making inroads into the West Bank through 
Islamic Jihad, just as they have done in, in Hamas for many, many years. That's a, a potential game changer. And of course, on the Israeli side, you have an extreme radical right-wing government that wants to take more West Bank territory. That only adds up to one thing, more and more and more of these clashes. I, I fear that un, unless one of these things change, there's a there's a different attitude from the Israeli government. There's a there's better uh, political authority from the Palestinian Authority, and something done to push Iranian influence out of uh, the West Bank. I fear that we're going to see more and more um, military actions. We're going to see more and more uh, sort of terrorist attacks from uh, Palestinian groups. This is the new reality in the West Bank. Mike Lyons, I want to ask you about uh, the kind of community that we're looking at here, because it is a refugee camp, mm -hmm. um, but obviously it's been there for quite some time, sure. so it's built up like any other city or town. What does that mean for the uh, strikes on it? Yeah, so having trained with the Israeli military as a young captain, I can just tell you this. Israel doesn't play. They, they bring everything they can to give every advantage they have from a military perspective to their soldiers. They brought so even within civilian settings? Yeah, I mean, they, they're, they're going to do as best they can, but from their perspective, protecting their force is their priority. That's just how they roll. I mean, it's just, again, you look, you look at how, how they operate. Um, they'll tell you that these were targeted strikes. It's very difficult right now to have this, you know, this, this a military operation and not expect these kind of casualties, not expect the collateral damage that goes from, from within. Now, they'll sit there and say that the ends justify the means, that they'll say because we're going after terrorist attacks. You know, they're not going to the United Nations showing pictures. They don't ask permission. They go. And they use the element of surprise from, again, I'm staying in my military lane from that perspective to protect their force. And we see now armored columns coming. There's going to be 10 to 15,000 more Israeli soldiers soon in that area. So they're not stopping. I think they're going to they're going to do as much as they can to decapitate what they believe to be a terrorist organization that's there, funded by the Iranians. I think that's where this is all coming from. And to Bobby's point, this is all coming from a government that is uh, that wants to expand that influence. In that you part know, of the Bobby, world. one thing that's different is uh, we're in the post-Abraham Accords period, right, after the Trump administration. So there's a normalization of relationships between um, Israel and several Arab countries. Is this moment a challenge to that, though? for these yes. nations. It is. It, it puts those Arab leaders who made uh, these uh, normalization moves with Israel, it puts them in an awkward position uh, with respect to their own civilian populations. Uh, there is still quite a lot of sympathy for the Palestinians among ordinary Arabs across the Arab world. But Arab, the Arab leadership in most of these countries that have made these, uh, these sort of uh, diplomatic overtures to Israel these are not elected governments. These leaders are, tend to be emirs and, and self-appointed. So there's uh, not an opportunity they don't there have to, to help diplomatically? I yeah. mean, can they, they really de-escalate the situation? Yeah, that, I think they will, be a, they will be behind closed doors. There will be conversations saying, you know, maybe you need to you tone this down. But the Israelis are pushing back and saying, look, we've got to do this. We've got to do this because Iran is a significant factor here. They're, they're, they're sort of playing up that aspect. And, and most of the Arab states have concerns about Iran too. So what Netanyahu is doing is, is trying to, to communicate to the Arab states that this is our common enemy. This is not the Palestinians. This is who's behind the Palestinians that we're trying to get at. Major Lyons, from a military operational perspective, I think what you've seen is, I don't want to say cookie cutter or playbook from the Israeli military, but they go in for a couple of days, usually, and obviously this is at a scale we haven't seen in two decades, as Sadas was reporting, and then they, they come out. They don't, they don't stay there for long periods of time, and I think in part that's political and kind of how the international community views things. Um, going into a place like this for 
two, three, four, as Hadass was saying, they may go a little bit longer um, days. What tangibly can be accomplished? What are their goals here? Just yeah. to have targets, take them out, and then move on? Yeah. Or because to Bobby's point, like, I don't understand how this ends. And I, and I don't mean to keep saying that no, in a sure. very simplistic, naive manner, but I'm talking specifically West Bank, Janine, yeah. what the Israeli forces are well, doing. From right a scorched earth perspective, they want to get every conceivable way that the Hamas and the terrorists wage war out of there against, against Israel. They're looking for bomb factories. They're looking for ammunitions. They're looking for every last bullet. They're not going to leave there until they you know, scour the, the earth there to make sure it's all out. What it does is buys them time. So now, you know, their attitude is let's reduce their ability to wage war against us. It's happening more again in the North Bank you know, side there, so the north part of the Western Bank. So, so they're not, again, they're not going to stop until the military commander reports back and says, okay, we've been through five square miles, whatever the, <clears throat> the region is, and says we, we've taken every single capability of this organization away from attacking us. And that's what their goal is. All right, Major Mike Lyons, Bobby Ghosh, thanks guys very much for your perspective. Way behind, but winnable. Hear from the spokesman from one Republican campaign as the candidates spend the July 4th holiday with voters. You were looking at live pictures from Iowa and New Hampshire this morning, where some of the Republican candidates will be spending their July 4th holiday. Former Vice President Mike Pence and Miami Mayor Francis Suarez will be in Iowa. Senator Tim Scott, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, they're going to be crisscrossing New Hampshire. So let's bring in New York, former New York Congressman Max Rose and some of our politics reporter Shelby Talcott. Um, Shelby, since I always go to you for telling me what's actually happening on the ground and what voters are saying, um, what was striking yesterday was the statement from the comments from the DeSantis Super PAC, acknowledging, and to Steve Cortez's credit, reality to some degree, but I want you to listen to him. Look, right now in national polling, uh, we are way behind. I'll be the first to admit that, okay? I believe in being really blunt and really honest. It's, a, it's an uphill battle. I don't think it's an unwinnable battle sure. by any stretch, okay? But clearly, Donald Trump is the, is the runaway front runner. So there's kind of two elements of it. First is like, yeah, okay, that's true. And second is uh, saying that out loud is not necessarily something any super backer candidate wants to do. Why, why is he saying it? It's a good question. I think, I think, <laughs> I mean, it's a very good question. I think you have to ask him that. But, but also I think he's, he's correct, as you say. Yeah. Maybe he's being too blunt, right? He does have a job. He's getting paid. Um, but it's correct. And I think in one way, acknowledging that they are in this position could allow them to maybe rectify it. But does that um, reflect that they suffered post-indictment, meaning trying to get money out of donors one way or another has become more difficult? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, think, I do think that DeSantis is one of the better um, people in the race in that regard. So I don't know if money is going to be his problem necessarily. I think it's can we get some of those voters who are now more in Trump's camp than ever because of the indictment over to our side. Uh, but but I guess acknowledging that you're doing something wrong is the first step to fixing the problem in a way. But, I mean, there was no, no acknowledgement of doing anything wrong, just that whatever they're doing yeah. is wrong. Yeah. And that's a good point, is, is I, I think some of this is out of their hands especially as the indictments potentially yeah. keep coming. X Rose, I want to ask about the lay of the land because obviously you've done a lot of campaigns. They're in New Hampshire and Iowa, which are first, but there's been so much dialogue about whether they should be <laughs> sure. in the primary process. I mean, what does it say about who is where? 
meaning like a Tim Scott in New Hampshire versus somewhere else? Sure. Well, you know, I think that they're both crisscrossing each of those states over the course of the year, and they had to pick one. I think it is absolutely essential, though, that they are all in one of those two states. What you're really seeing here is with Donald Trump, right? It's no longer about policy when you think about his hold on right. that primary Which is base. Why he's it's still about in Bedminster, right? I mean, he's right, not right, out he, there. This is about a cult of personality. And so they can't just go out there and do soaring speeches and have debates. They've got to go from barbecue to parade to festival to everything in between and actually talk to people and show that they are a human being, something actually that some of these candidates struggle with. Ron DeSantis um, in particular, the other interesting thing associated with all these events is that they're always one step away from incredible embarrassment. And in the day and age where everyone has a camera, you know, that they're going to eat that hot dog and potentially it gets all over their <laughs> but shirt. But we're also in the, yeah, in the that, age of the end of shame, issue. right? Like you can't actually be embarrassed anymore, I think. <laughs> like I don't think a gaffe oh, has taken anyone down in a minute. They're going to test it in the next yeah. couple of <laughs> you, you know, Can I ask you, like, does retail still matter? And I said, because you were known as, a, as somebody who thrived in retail campaigning and politics, um, uh, there were always pictures of you, you know, outside of a train station or outside, you know, constantly like sweating through your shirt. No offense. I, I respect that. <laughs> like in the summers, but shaking hands, always being out. And I think one of the things that I think a lot of campaign operatives have tried to figure out in the wake of Trump in 2016 and then the COVID election of 2020 is like, do the old rules still apply in places like New Hampshire and Iowa? They, they of course do. I mean, particularly in New Hampshire and Iowa, where you see people who have rightfully so an incredible sense of self-importance. They do not care if you're a former vice president. They don't care if you're a sitting governor. You better come into well, They would home. consider themselves civic minded. But yes. Sure. Well, <laughs> Both things uh, can be true. You, you I would know. like to not get mail from Iowa. Well, well, I, think, I think that, you know, whereas when Ron DeSantis walks into a room in Florida, that is the sitting governor and he is treated as such. When he is walking around Iowa and New Hampshire, he is just another candidate. And actually, folks, take great pride in that. But what you're also going to see over the course of these Fourth of July events is a massive, massive change when it comes to Republican politics. Usually their rhetoric is centered around unity and patriotism and love of country, particularly on a day like this. But today you're still going to see this rhetoric that is dystopian in nature, talking about the weaponization of government and how you know, the, the Biden administration is against us. Their, their language is not going to be about coming together. It is going to be about waging war against the establishment. Shelby, one more quick question. It's sort of unspoken, but I'll speak it. Who's running for vice president here? <laughs> It's a good question. Uh, again, good <laughs> questions this morning. So, I mean, if you ask the all of the candidates, they would all say that yeah. they are not running for vice president. Um, but do the voters see it that way? No. I, and I've spoken to voters. And listen, you talk to Tim Scott's campaign, they will tell you that he's not running for vice president. The quickest way to get on their, their bad list is to say he's running for vice president. But people are interested in him as a vice president. People are interested in Nikki Haley as a vice president. People are interested in Ron DeSantis as a vice president. I've heard from a lot of voters, and I don't think this would ever happen, um, that the Trump-DeSantis ticket would be unstoppable. So candidate, uh, these voters are looking at these candidates as, okay, you know, maybe they can't, if they don't win the presidency, could they be an option for the vice presidency? And I think there's, there's multiple options there, whether they get picked especially if Trump is the nominee, is, is the bigger question. And just for clarity, to the Tim Scott campaign, to the Nikki Haley campaign, 
Shelby was very careful with how she framed that, made very clear, you guys have made clear <laughs> that they are not questions. running for vice I'm president. She was questions. reflecting conversations yeah. with voters. That yeah. distinction uh, is important. Yes. I'll say they're running for vice president. <laughs> <laughs> Yell at Max. Max yeah. Rose, Shelby Tucker, thanks so much, guys. All right, still ahead, more on the major news overnight from Moscow. Russia intercepting drones they say were sent by Ukraine. And this is Ukraine's President Zelensky makes an appeal to President Biden in a CNN exclusive. So he has a he has a decision to make coming into yes, this weekend. Yes, for today, yes. He's a decision maker for today to be Ukrainian NATO or not to be. New this morning, Russia claims it intercepted five Ukrainian drones. They say the drones were attempting to target an area where civilian infrastructure is located. Now, this is just the latest sign that Ukraine's counteroffensive is underway. Meantime, in an exclusive interview with CNN's Aaron Burnett, Ukrainian President Zelensky making clear that Ukraine's path to a NATO membership relies heavily on President Biden's immediate support. Putin. The U.S. decide today whether Ukraine will get invited to NATO. This is today's situation, and it's a fact. The majority of the NATO countries support inviting Ukraine to NATO. Those who have their doubts look only at President Biden, and he knows that this depends on him. It will be his decision. So he has a, he has a decision to make coming into yes, this weekend? Yes, for today, yes. He is a decision maker for today to be Ukrainian NATO or not to be. Right. Not and down the line, now. Now. It's very important. It will push Russia. It will push our soldiers to decupate quicker. But we know that we will never be in NATO before war finish. Right. So we understand everything. But this signal is really very important and depends on Biden's decision. Joining us now is former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, William Taylor. He's the vice president of the Russia and Europe Center at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Audrey. Now, just because uh, the Ukrainian president says it's a decision that has to be made doesn't necessarily mean it does. Can you talk about what the traditional U.S. reluctance has been to embracing Ukraine into NATO? Yes, this has been on the table for a long time, the question about Ukraine in NATO. It, it came up, of uh, course, in uh, 2008, um, <clears throat> when President Bush um, pushed NATO to uh, give an invitation to Ukraine and Georgia uh, to join NATO. Um, it would be interesting to go back if we could do this over again, if the NATO alliance had said yes at that time, this war t today may not have happened because uh, Ukraine would have been in NATO and uh, Russia would not have attacked. However, that debate continues. Um, and now it is, um, as President Zelensky just said, it's up to the summit in Vilnius, another NATO summit coming up uh, this month. Um, and the decision will be for the, all the heads of state they're probably still thinking about it. And I think he's right. President Bush, President Biden is now considering exactly this question. And that will be the question for the heads of state in Vilnius in two weeks. Uh, Ambassador Taylor, I mean, to be candid in talking to 
White House officials, their national security team officials, I've never gotten the sense that a near-term decision on this was ever in the realm of possibility. And I understand why President Zelensky continues to push for that. It's exactly what he should be doing in this moment in time. So what is the outcome in Lithuania at the NATO summit that kind of uh, threads the needle here between uh, where the U.S. is on this issue and concerns they have? There is active conflict going on, on with Ukraine right now and Russia, um, and trying to provide some type of long-term security guarantee uh, as part of uh, what they're putting together beyond just now. Beyond just now, Phil, you're right. Um, and I think most people agree, probably President Zelensky agrees, that uh, joining NATO, actually becoming a member of NATO right now is not on the cards for Ukraine. It's not gonna happen while there is active conflict. However, what the Vilnius summit can do is basically invite Ukraine to join <clears throat> when conditions are appropriate. That is, when it's possible for Ukraine to join, then they will join. That's the message that the Ukrainians are looking for is a firm commitment um, that once conditions are right, once it's appropriate, once it makes sense, um, then they'll be able to join NATO. That's the only way that they can have that security guarantee, Phil, that you mentioned. They need something to say to investors, to their people, to the world, that they're not going to be invaded again. And the best guarantee is to be a member of NATO. The other thing that we've learned is they're requesting uh, cluster munitions. This is very controversial uh, among European nations in particular. Can you talk about um, whether or not that, that makes sense for the U.S.? Well, the question is, does it make sense for the Ukrainians in the first instance? Um, and they are fighting uh, <clears throat> masses of Russian troops. Um, and the military argument um, for these munitions is strong. That is, uh, these, are, these, these munitions are effective against, uh, against these Russian troops. Um, there, is a, there, there are controversies uh, about these weapons. Uh, some of the little bomblets don't go off. They're duds and they stay around. So this is tricky for Ukrainians. It's tricky for the United States. And that'll be a hard decision to make. Uh, Ambassador Taylor, we learned yesterday that uh, uh, the U.S. ambassador to Russia uh, had met with t detained Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gerskovich. Um, this is very hard for people to understand, one, because there is not a lot of public information, uh, both because of how the Russians operate, but also because how, of how the U.S. government operates in these types of moments. Um, and I think the concern amongst reporters, amongst Evan's friends, amongst those who believe, and it's been made very clear that the allegations uh, are fraudulent and aren't based in reality, that he kind of fades out of view. And that's a problem if there's not public sentiment continually pushing for this. Can you take us behind the scenes as a Foreign Service officer, what's happening in this moment inside the U.S. government as they try and work towards securing a release? So, Phil, it's not behind the scenes. It's not out of the minds of uh, U.S. officials. The U.S. government, in all of its, all of its elements, um, is focused on getting him out. Uh, wrongfully detained means he is a political prisoner. Um, and they are looking for ways to bring him out, as they've done before. They've been successful. The U.S. government has brought people out before. They're looking for a way to do that. Um, and the visit by the ambassador to the person who's uh, wrongfully detained is one important way to demonstrate support for that person while he's being, while he's being detained. All right, Ambassador Bill Teller, thank you, sir, very much for sharing your perspective. Thank you. Well, it's being called Nature's Ozempic. Come on. 
<laughs> but could an herbal dietary supplement really cause significant weight loss? Our health team has a breakdown. That's coming up next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. It's being called nature's ozempic on social media, especially TikTok users claim the herbal dietary supplement berberin helped them lose weight. CNN health reporter Jacqueline Howard joins us now. All right, Jacqueline, first of all, is there any data to show that this could be effective when it comes to weight loss? Well, that's the interesting thing, Adi. We really don't have clinical trial data that shows weight loss uh, benefits when it comes to berberine. Now, berberine itself, it is a compound found in plants, and these are plants that have been used traditionally for thousands of years in medicine. But when it comes to the evidence showing that it's truly what some people are calling nature's ozempic, we don't have that scientific data. I did look at some studies. One study showed that uh, berberine was associated with a BMI reduction of 0.25 body mass index units. But in comparison, people taking Wagovi or Ozempic tend to show a 4.6 reduction in BMI. So as you see, there's a big difference there in weight loss. So we really need more data on this. That's the bottom line, Adi. Yeah, but Jacqueline, let's be clear here. Why do you need scientific data if you have TikTok uh, endorsements? <laughs> um, joking aside, I think one of the big questions when anything like this kind of pops into the mainstream is, are, are there any risks here? Should people be cognizant of specific concerns before doing something like this? Absolutely. So people who are pregnant or breastfeeding should not take this. It should not be given to infants. And of course, it could interact with certain medications. So talk to your doctor if you do take berberine. And then there are some common side effects, abdominal pain, vomiting, nausea, constipation. That's important to keep in mind as well. All right, Jacqueline Howard, thanks so much. Absolutely. Now we're going to take you to some dramatic video of a police pursuit showing, showing a semi going the wrong way on a Texas highway that's with speeds topping 85 miles an hour. Watch this. He's still, he's driving on the shoulder on the southbound lane going northbound. We're going over 80 miles an hour. Now the driver refused to stop, according to the Texas Department of Public Safety. Police say eventually the driver and several undocumented immigrants jumped out and tried to make a run for it. Twelve migrants were detained. Police arrested the driver, who's now facing multiple charges, including human smuggling and reckless driving. Ahead, the details of a new lawsuit against Harvard University over its admissions process. shooting in southwest Philadelphia. Police say one person is in custody. This male was wearing a bulletproof vest with multiple magazines in the vest. He also had a scanner and an AR-style rifle and a handgun. Two children, a two-year-old and a 13-year-old, are injured. A new lawsuit takes aim at Harvard's legacy admissions policy. This is hot on the heels of the Supreme Court's decision to dismantle affirmative action. We've done a terrible job of preparing our black and brown kids to be able to go to college. I think the question is how do you continue to create the, a culture where education is the goal? One of the things that Harvard can do to make that even better is to eliminate any legacy programs. Hundreds of Israeli soldiers descending on Janine. 
want to break of the camp being a safe haven for terrorists. Israel is warning that its new military operation in the occupied West Bank is not over yet after the most intense military raid in the territory in two decades. We are unarmed people. We don't have anything in the camp to respond to this force. He would just do stuff and say stuff with this conviction. Did you guys have a nickname for him? Daddy DeSantis. <laughs> um, I mean, it's all joking. Of course. Because we're like desperate women who had tried everything that we could do in our own power, in our own communities, and we weren't getting anywhere. I'm George Boats, and I approve this burger. Some of the best burgers I've ever had in my life have been with you guys. I realized that the people who were making these burgers didn't realize themselves their own importance. Well, good morning, everyone. It is July 4th. There, I'm sure, are burgers in many of your futures. Audie Cornish is joining me now, and usually holidays are slow for news. There is a significant amount day. of news, and we're following breaking news this morning across the country, including three mass shootings in just two days during a violent 4th of July weekend. Brand new overnight, police in Fort Worth, Texas, say at least two people are dead and six are wounded after a shooting following a neighborhood festival. In Philadelphia, police say a gunman wearing body armor went on a shooting rampage on the city streets. At least five people are dead, two children are wounded, including a two-year-old toddler. Investigators say the suspect had an AR-15-style rifle and a handgun, a police scanner, and multiple ammo magazines packed in his body armor when police officers arrested him in an alley. And the hunt is still on for suspects after two people were killed and 28 injured, many of them teenagers, at a block party in Baltimore. Now, we're going to have team coverage on all the latest developments, and we start with Danny Freeman live outside the Philadelphia police headquarters. And, Danny, to start, what is the sense of emotive here? Again, this is the suspect who was walking the streets, right, in, in uh, gear. Yeah, that's right, Audie. And really, police have not answered that question. And it's unclear if they know the answer to the question as to why this suspect, why this man opened fire in otherwise a relatively calm neighborhood the night before the 4th of July. Uh, but here's what we do know about the suspect. He is in his 40s. As you said, he was taken into custody and he was carrying multiple weapons and also that body armor. But as of last night, police said to us, we just don't know why this man started firing last night. But I will tell you a little bit about more about how exactly this came to be. It also started around 8.30 last night. Philadelphia police got a call of multiple gunshot victims in the Kingsessing area of Philadelphia. That's in the southwest from where we are right now. Um, officers arrived. They did find gunshot victims, but then they also heard a number of gunshots. And the police commissioner really described this chaotic moment of officers arriving on scene, hearing gunshots and chasing the gunman by listening to the sound of his gunfire. Eventually, officers were able to apprehend him. I should say they did it without firing a shot. It's something that police commissioner Daniel Outlaw mentioned and highlighted last night. Take a listen. Thank God uh, our officers were here on scene. They responded as quickly as they did. They showed up. I can't even describe the level of bravery and courage that was shown, not in addition to uh, the restraint that was also shown here. Uh, we unfortunately have six victims here, uh, but it could have been more had it not been for the officers. I'm 
also add, Commissioner Outlaw noted, like you said in the beginning, like you heard in the beginning, they found on this suspect a bulletproof vest, an AR-style rifle, a handgun, multiple magazines, and a police radio scanner. The other thing, too, is that, so as you heard, Commissioner Outlaw said initially there were six victims, including four people who were killed and those two children who were injured. Then we learned overnight there's actually a fifth, uh, rather I should say, a seventh victim, a fifth person who died in this shooting. He was found dead on the floor of a nearby home, and police said that he is likely connected to this particular shooting. Uh, one thing, Audie and Phil, I just want to add in this particular case is just some perspective. Homicides in the city of Philadelphia, they're actually down almost 20% uh, compared to the same time last year, but that other bit of perspective is that it is still the homicide level here in Philadelphia, still much higher than the pre-pandemic levels. So, again, heading into the actual 4th of July holiday, a lot of folks on edge after this mass shooting in the city. Danny, Audie, thank you for that context. Now, joining us at the table, Joseph Pinion, Republican strategist and political commentator, Natasha Alford, CNN political analyst and senior correspondent at The Grio, and Ellie Honig, CNN senior legal analyst and former assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. Welcome to all of you. Good to be here. Um, these are tough stories to open the day with. Um, and so far, what they have in common, of course, is uh, the connection of weapons, right? Different motives, different things going on. Um, we had the mayor of Baltimore on uh, yesterday, and he talked about illegal guns in his state, not always the issue. Um, but what, what difficulties does this pose for city leaders um, around the country who are trying to get a grip on these bouts of violent crime? Well, look, I, I think for me, certainly it's tragic. I think it has become almost a tired trope where we have these holiday weekends that basically end in bloodshed. And so whether you're talking about what we just saw here, whether we're talking about the 28 people that were shot in Baltimore, whether we're talking about the over 30 people shot in Chicago, uh, we know for a fact there is a small sliver of people uh, who are committing the vast majority of these crimes all across this country. And so the question becomes, what are the policies that we can be putting in place that keep the criminals off the streets? What are the policies that we can be putting in place to keep guns in particular out of the hands of those criminals? Certainly we can have a conversation about ghost guns as the mayor of Baltimore was talking about. But the overwhelming majority of these issues deal with the fact that we have people that do not follow the laws anyway. So what are the policies that are actually going to result in us actually stopping the crimes that spur the conversation in the first place? Natasha. I think it's appropriate that you know, today is the 4th of July because this is this is America now. This is the American uh, sort of way of being. It's it's a state of constant fear. It's a state of even as you go out to celebrate, you have to sort of look over your shoulder and wonder what will happen. And so, you know, Joe mentions crime. What comes to me, uh, what comes to mind for me is terrorism, this this idea of domestic terrorism and whether the United States has really grappled with this unique form of American violence um, that is not just about sort of petty criminals trying to get their way, but it's about inflicting fear um, on the American people. And so from a policy standpoint, how you legislate, how you address that, I'm not really sure, but I think it's something that we actually have to confront head on. So the, pr the problem with gun violence in this country, I think, is complicated and multifaceted. You can't just point to any one factor. There's a legislative piece of it. There's a gun culture. And there's also a leadership and, and frankly, law enforcement aspect of this. I was a prosecutor for a long time. And I think I, I have to say the DA in Philly in particular has been an abject failure. Larry Krasner has been in office since 2018. And Danny said exactly correctly. 
rates of shootings and homicides spiked from the time he took office until now. They're down a bit this year from last year, but nearly doubled from when he took office in 2018 up through 2019 on through 2021. And at a certain point, you have to ask a leader in a position like that. You've been in office now five years and these rates are unacceptable. And the culture in Philadelphia, I have relatives who live in Philadelphia right near where yeah, Danny lives. I mean, correlation is not causation. No, no, <laughs> And we not. should also say, right, the Absolute, state, this, there is also a conflict, right, at the state level about what the gun policy should be in Pennsylvania. And they right. say local ordinances cannot be passed without the state. Pennsylvania has, right, exactly. Uh, there's two questions here. How strict are the gun laws? And then secondly, how are they being enforced? But you're right, Audie. I always be skeptical of any public official who says crime rates went up or down and it's solely because of A or B. But it's a factor. And, and I don't think it can be ignored here. Well, look, also, I just think that we have this conversation and kind of uh, this either or uh, comparison, right, where either you're for guns, either you're against guns. And what gets lost in the conversation is what are the policies that we should be putting in place to prevent the violence? I think, again, yes, uh, we can talk about people being terrorized, but I don't think that we can talk about it in the sense of traditional terrorism. We have people that do not feel as if they have a reason to live. We have communities yeah. that has have been Has there ever been historical. a Republican policy that has been aimed towards the things you're talking about? We often hear people talk about mental health. We often people talk about systemic issues. But is there any Republican agenda that addresses those factors you consider that are outside of Absolutely. I, I think, again, there is a three-strand cord of despair in this country that starts with a lack of educational But are you hearing that from that candidates? Over in the past. Certainly we hear that from candidates all the time. I think it's not necessarily the substance of the policy, but how it's, it's actually messaged. And I think if you look at, historically, the type of message that resonates with communities of color, it always starts with, what is the program? And so if you're not talking about a specific program... And with outside program, communities, that right, crime is the right, problem and, and so, those people are the problem. Right. And so I think if you're talking about things through a program-centered view, then it's very difficult for people to necessarily receive a message about a policy view that tackles the educational inequality that we have in this country, that tackles the cycle of poverty that stems from that educational inequality. So, I mean, to be clear, that's not what we're talking about in the factor in Philadelphia and elsewhere, right? I mean, I mean, in, in Philadelphia, so, I mean, the details are still coming out, but this is someone who had magazines yeah. on them. I just want to make was, sure that we're not no, conflating the well, difference. No, I, I, this I is think, what makes it such a difficult issue no, to untangle. I think the, the reality is you can focus on the magazines. The reality is what put the gun in that person's hand? What left that person with a sense of personal despair that they were willing to basically throw away their own life and take the lives of others. And those are the underlying issues that I do think Republicans, I think people across the political spectrum do talk about. But when we have these conversations, they get neglected. They don't get actually spoken about forcefully. And I think we all suffer because of it. Why don't they get spoken about forcefully? Like I, I can I can go through at least the Republican candidates in the primary that I covered on Capitol Hill, Tim Scott being the one that comes to mind, who has very specific policies to address a lot of the issues that you're talking about. And yet, in terms of a primary, what the primary voters are talking about, what the people are talking about on the stump on a regular basis, you never hear about it. Why? Well, look, I think the reality is that you can't help anybody from your couch. And so there is a political reality to the fact that there is not a proliferation of African-American and Hispanic primary voters. No, no he's talking about the around. voters in the primary, Republican primary right, voters. Is there no that. way to repeal? You're saying there's no way to what, appeal to a predominantly no, white what, what I, what Republican I'm is that electorate or help us understand? What I'm saying is that if you're trying to have a conversation about the issues that are overwhelmingly impacting urban America, there are not a lot of people from that section of the electorate that are participating in 
Republican primaries. And so it, I think... And that's the only way it matters. I, I don't think that... Certainly that's not what I said. I think the reality is that Democrats talk about the issues that are going to be impacting primary voters. Republicans talk about the issues that are going to be rep impacting Republican primary voters. And then, as always, we have a general election where there is a pivot, the triangulation, as it was called uh, during the Clinton era. So, look, I think certainly we should never be trying to segment the conversation. We should be talking about the broader American people. But I also think it's dishonest for us to pretend that we don't live in the world where partisan politics does impact the primary process and the issues that get brought up during those periods. All right, guys, stay with us. We've got a lot more to come throughout the course of the next hour. Also new this morning, Russia says it intercepted five Ukrainian drones near Moscow. While there are no immediate reports of casualties or damage, the Kremlin claims it thwarted a terrorist attack and said many of the targets seem fixed on civilian infrastructure. I want to bring in Army Major Mike, retired Army Major Mike Lyons. Mike, we've seen a couple of incidents like this. They seem to be, to some degree, accelerating. What do we know about these five drones? So Russia claims Ukraine has struck two targets, one basically the, surrounding Moscow, a uh, air, civilian airfield on the west side, and then a special forces group on the east side of Moscow. Conveniently, doesn't hit Moscow, had the capability to do that. Color me skeptical on this one and, and the fact that uh, the only capability Ukraine has to do this are the Turkish TB2 drones. And given their counteroffensive right now, this is not worth it. This is not worth them wasting this resource here. If you see this video that the Russian media releases, you know, some guy pointing at the sky at something that we can really hardly see is what's out there. Uh, we could try to think that that's a TB2 Turkish drone, uh, that, that's in the Ukraine inventory or not. So, again, I'm skeptical that the Ukraine military would waste this kind of resource, given what they're trying to do with their counteroffensive right now. At this point, is there any sign of uh, that this is actually connected to the counteroffensive? And why wouldn't it be, given the vulnerabilities of Russia after the Wagner Rebellion? Well, I think that uh, Ukraine's got to be concerned about what's what's happening, what's still coming from Russia's perspective. We saw overnight also in Sumy there was an attack from Russian drones into into Ukraine, and that this one had casualties. Um, if uh, the, the Ukrainian president needs to get to the NATO summit here and get more what's called shore edge, short range air defense platforms. This would kind of prevent this from happening inside of Ukraine right now. But again, the confusion that's taking place inside of Russia, Russia needs a win. So this is what they do to try to create a win on their side, say that the Ukrainians are attacking them from a terrorist perspective. But at the end of the day, tactically, the kind of help that the Ukraine president needs is this short range missile defenses that will help him that with the defenses that are coming against the Russian drones. That's Major Mike Lyons. Thank you. All right, well, coming up next, we have a Supreme Court ruling against affirmative action in higher education. What's it been going forward? Well, advocacy groups are taking aim at admissions at Harvard. How strong is their case? The panel's gonna weigh in. And live images out of Tel Aviv, Israel, where a car just rammed through pedestrians in what police are calling a terrorist attack. New details coming into CNN. Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. Preferential treatment, it's coming under fire at one of the nation's top universities. This is just days after the U.S. Supreme Court gutted affirmative action and the upper hand, it says, it provided. Now, three minority advocacy groups have filed a lawsuit challenging Harvard's legacy admissions program. CNN's Athena Jones joins us at the table. And Athena, um, felt like this was coming to some degree. Uh, what's the lawsuit actually say? 
Well, this is about two kinds of legacy applicants. So applicants who have a parent or relative who went to Harvard and applicants who are related to a donor. These groups are arguing that Harvard's admissions process, the preferential treatment that these kinds of applicants get, violates the 1964 uh, Civil Rights Act. Uh, they say that this preferential treatment goes largely to white students because they make up nearly 70% of these legacy applicants. And a district court has found the, the preferences that they're given to be sizable and significant. And this complaint includes a lot of data. They use admissions numbers to try to make their case. And here's some of the things they found. They found that in the class of 2026, nearly 2,000 were admitted out of an applicant pool of just over 61,000. That's an admissions rate of just about 3.24%, so very, very low. But if you were donor-related, so related to a donor, the admissions rate for you was seven times higher at 42%. This was for a period from 2014 to 2019. So the numbers are kind of looking historically. And then this admissions rate for legacy applicants, so someone who had a parent or relative who went to Harvard, was six times higher, so about 33.6%. And as you mentioned, the timing of this is important because it's coming less than a week after the Supreme Court limited uh, the use of race in, admit, in college admissions. And so these groups are arguing that given that ruling, now it's even more imperative to make sure they eliminate any policies that disadvantage students of color. They argue that that's what this legacy admissions preferences do, simply because so many of these legacies are white. And part of this is because college admissions is a zero-sum game, of course. If a legacy applicant gets a spot, that means that someone else who may not be related to someone who went to Harvard, may not be related to someone who donated to Harvard, is trying to get on their own merit, that leaves, leaves the spot and not, not empty for them. So they can't get in if that spot is taken by a legacy applicant. Here is one thing they said in the lawsuit. They said experts have concluded that removing legacy preferences would increase admissions for applicants of color and that approximately one quarter of white students admitted would not have been admitted if the donor and legacy preferences, among others, did not exist. And so they say if Harvard gets rid of these legacy preferences, then they're going to see admissions rates for black, Latino, and Asian American students rise by 4 to 5% in, with each of those groups, and that they would see admissions among white students fall by 4%. So they're saying, look, other schools have done this. Other schools have gotten rid of this unfair treatment. It's time for Harvard to do the same. You know, uh, in Neil Gorsuch's, I think, opinion on the affirmative action case, I, I see the groundwork laid for this conversation about legacy admissions. Is that right, Ellie? Do you remember reading this? Yeah, I, I think it's, look, it flows naturally, logically, and legally from the opinion last week that legacy admissions are on their last legs. I, I guess I will say, though, two caveats. Number one, the courts, including the Supreme Court, are going to apply more scrutiny to an explicit discriminatory system, affirmative action, whether one likes it or not. They explicitly say, what's the person's race? And then assign certain value to that versus a system like this one, as Athena just laid out, which has what we call a disparate impact. It doesn't on its face say we're going to make differentiations based on race, but it has a disparate impact favoring white applicants. Courts are going to treat those a little bit differently. The second thing, and let's remember, the Supreme Court does not have to take any case it does not want to take. And so the question is, will they have, they need four votes to take a case. Will they have those four votes? But I think reading even the majority opinion, striking down the affirmative action uh, practice last week, I think it's clear if you sort of do the logical math that uh, it's hard to justify legally or logically uh, ongoing uh, legacy admission policies. Joe, this strikes me as political gold. 
in the sense of the, like, there's actually overlapping concentric circles between Republicans and Democrats who are looking around and trying to maybe strike a little bit more of a populist tone and saying, I'm, I'm not going to defend legacy admissions <laughs> unless they went to one of these schools and want their kids to get into it. Uh, and I think you saw Republicans and Democrats come out after uh, the Supreme Court ruling and agree from a 30,000-foot level that perhaps legacy admissions should be next. What's your sense of things? Well, look, I think, you know, we've got our legal scholar here, but I think if we're just talking politically, and I think as a human, uh, either you're for merit or you're not. And so if you're somehow trying to say that you were opposed to affirmative action or at least the manner in which it was being implemented because it was not effectively giving uh, merit where it was due, then you certainly have to say that if you're granting people a benefit towards admission rooted in the racial inequality that predated the need for the policy in the first place, then somehow you're doing a great disservice uh, to the process of merit. So look, I think that there are Republicans that will hop on it, but I also think, again, there are always people who are willing to turn a blind eye to the policies that benefit them while hopping up and down and banging the table and talking about a policy that benefits a different type of individual. So uh, I think it's not quite as simple as we would hope it would be, but I think from my perspective and I think the perspective of most Americans, if you're looking for merit, I think that legacy admissions, to your point, uh, probably has seen its better days. Would you? I, I think this goes back to what Kataji Brown Jackson said, which is that there's the impact of race in real life, and then there's the way that you approach it in the law. For legacy admits, they've had a head start right in this race, and the reality is that they are more likely to be white. The institution discriminated against African-Americans for the longest. The first three African-Americans who came in the 1850s had to be expelled because their white classmates refused to take classes with them. So it was never necessarily about merit or whether you qualified to go to the institution. It was about whether the institution was willing to have you there. Privilege compounds like money in a savings account, right? And so there's a, a population right now that has this advantage. And so you have to address it. We've seen the impact at other universities. And the truth is that admission rates do drop for legacy when you take that off the table. Athena, thank you so much. Natasha, Joe, and Ellie, please stay with us. All right, this just into CNN, a car ramming through pedestrians in Tel Aviv, Israel. Police are calling it a terrorist attack. Stay with us. We'll have more details coming up next. This just into CNN, live images out of Tel Aviv, Israel, where a car just rammed through pedestrians and what Israeli police are calling a terrorist attack. Police say seven people were injured at a Tel Aviv shopping center. Officials say the driver then proceeded to get out of the vehicle to stab civilians with a sharp object before he was killed by police. Well, that's all unfolding as Israeli forces continue to operate in Jenin, a day after launching its largest military operation in the occupied West Bank in more than two decades. The airstrikes killing at least nine people and injuring about 100 others, according to Palestinian officials. Israeli officials say it was targeting a militant command center as part of an extensive counterterrorism effort. Joining us now is one of the foremost experts on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, former State Department Middle East negotiator Aaron David Miller. Uh, I appreciate you joining us, um, in part because, you know, you'd made a point um, on social media a week or two ago, I can't remember when it was, about how this is kind of, they're in a bloody cul-de-sac with no way out at this point in time. You could see this accelerating over the course of the last several weeks. Um, on the political, on the military, uh, on all the dynamics uh, geopolitically as well. My question is, given the scale of the military operation underway, where does this go from here? Um, you know, I make a lot of predictions. Most of them, frankly, are wrong. 
Um, the problem here, I think, is the, the notion of a cul-de-sac. You have, you have three factors that are driving this train, this very bloody, volatile, and, and tragic train. Number one, you have um, a Palestinian authority that is weak, divided, uh, and simply unable to assume responsibility, in the, particularly in the northern West Bank, Janine and Nablus. Number two, you have the most right-wing fundamentalist government in the history of the state of Israel committed literally to pursuing policies, which they're doing now, to uh, basically enact the West Bank in everything but name. And third, you have a, a, a new phenomenon, that is to say informal groups of young Palestinians roughly between the ages of 15 to 25 in Janine, in Nablus, uh, supported, facilitated, encouraged by organized groups such as Palestine Islamic Jihad and Hamas, um, which are demonstrating a fierce determination to resist Israelis and to plan attacks um, in the West Bank and in Israel proper. And the problem is that uh, there, there doesn't seem to be any way to counterbalance this. The international community has checked out. Governing is about choosing with respect to the Biden administration. They have other priorities. And uh, it's, it's hard to see this... Um, not necessarily blowing up to a third intifada. There are reasons that I think may prevent that. But you've got the new normal, here, which is which is this bloody squad between Israeli defense forces and armed groups, uh, informal and encouraged by organized elements. None of this, frankly, is going to stop. It's a it's a veritable. It's not a cycle of violence so much as it is deeply entrenched factors which. Uh, right now are, are not vulnerable to amelioration. Um, there's different contexts here. We talked about the Abraham Accords earlier, meaning a different different diplomatic ties for Israel. Also, Israel itself had been rocked by protests and people's concerns about its own government. Do Are there any other kind of unknown unknowns, right, other kinds of factors here that could provide some kind of path out diplomatically or at least off-ramp from escalation? You know, it might take an external catalyst uh, in order to at least create a pathway to try to calm the situation. But frankly, that would involve a very difficult choice on the part of the Biden administration. You know, having worked for Republicans and Democrats, uh, presidents don't like to tangle with Israeli prime ministers. It's messy. It's awkward. It's, it could be very politically costly, particularly when in the, in the administration's uh, view, there's very little that they could do in order to counter these deeply entrenched factors. So I'm afraid, Audie, um, and this is hardly going to come as, as a surprise, that this situation in the West Bank and in Jerusalem and perhaps in Israel proper is going to get worse, frankly, before it actually uh, gets worse. One final point. The prime minister is wants to pursue judicial reform, judicial overhaul, essentially. And he's blocked. Protesters were at Ben-Gurion Airport yesterday uh, demonstrating that uh, preservation and made some democracy is a 24-7 proposition. It's a marathon. It's not a 100-yard dash. And because it's blocked, he's rewarding the more extreme ministers with his own government. He's paying them in annexationist coin. I think the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, did not want to launch uh, an operation that was this large. I think in large part, politics also uh, colored the, the breadth and depth of what the Israelis are doing in Guinea. All right, Aaron David Miller, really appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Thank you.
Next, a group of suburban parents from across the country finding their political hero in Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. They say his handling of the pandemic hooked them, but it's his focus on culture wars threatening that support. A CNN report ahead. Florida governor and Republican presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis, like some of his rivals, will be hitting the campaign trail this 4th of July. He'll be reaching out to voters in New Hampshire. CNN's Ellie Reeve recently spoke with a group of women, several of whom are lifelong Democrats, about why they stand with DeSantis. If DeSantis were to run tomorrow, he would win. And that would be such a hard pill to swallow, I think, for many people. Back in 2021, Vanessa Steinkamp was the first person who told me she was a fan of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and that there were more like her. When we first spoke to you in 2021, you mentioned that you had this group of mom friends that you met on Twitter who were just obsessed with DeSantis and it just stuck in my mind for years. He would just do stuff and say stuff with this conviction. We were all like, thank you. Did you guys have a nickname for him? Daddy DeSantis. <laughs> um, I mean, it's all joking. Of course. Because we're like desperate women who had tried everything that we could do in our own power, in our own communities, and we weren't getting anywhere. He was very vocal starting in the summer of 2020 about the need to open schools in particular. During the COVID lockdowns in 2020, these frustrated moms built an informal Twitter network of people angry about closed schools and the difficulty of remote learning. They were from all over the country, but saw DeSantis as a model of what they wanted in their cities. School is a safe haven. I mean, when I started advocating for kids to go back in person, I was called a granny killer, a teacher killer, selfish, on Twitter. On Twitter. Oh my God, they were, it was awful. Steinkamp is a teacher in Dallas and warned early on that lockdowns would hurt kids, especially poor kids. We can't forget our most vulnerable, and we've just created the single largest inequality generator in a generation by having some schools open, some schools closed. On Twitter, Steinkamp connected with Jin Say, then a Levi's executive, who moved her family from San Francisco to Denver in early 2021 so she could send her kids to school in person. We quickly sort of found a community online, and I found it really interesting that she was a teacher that was advocating for in-person school. In San Francisco, you could go to a bar or a strip club, but my high school student couldn't go to English class. Say says she was forced out of Levi's in 2022 because of her COVID tweets, which the company told NPR undermined its own health and safety policies and sowed confusion among employees. 90% of what I wrote about was playgrounds and schools, and there's nothing embarrassing about that now. There were several active group chats where the moms shared news about COVID and DeSantis. One grew to more than 80 people, and they traveled to each other's homes. Many had been lifelong Democrats, including Julie Hamill, who has three kids and lives near LA. Can I do Beyblades? You voted for Obama. Yeah. You vote twice. Clinton? Yes. Did you vote for Biden? Yes. I have never voted for a Republican presidential candidate. I have always considered myself very socially liberal. But as we became more vocal on Twitter, we were really demonized. In 2022, she ran for school board in Palos Verdes and won. So I'm going to fight back. And was an active defender of her Twitter friends. They aren't crazy. Data from the education department shows kids have been hurt by long-term remote learning. Black and brown students more than white. In August 2020, DeSantis was early to open schools compared to other U.S. states, but not the world. 
many European countries went back under national policies. In May 2020, for example, a Finland health official cited data that kids didn't play a significant role in spreading the virus. But in the last two years, DeSantis has launched his presidential campaign and focused more on the culture war. We will make sure as president, we leave woke ideology in the dustbin of history where it belongs. The Twitter backlash they experienced made these women more receptive to parts of DeSantis's fight against wokeness, but not all of it. I'm wondering if you think that DeSantis's, you know, very public war on woke distracts from the message that you like about him. A little bit, I do. Yeah. Because I mean, like to be honest, I, I like I do feel like it would be really good to have a big public debate about what did we get wrong in COVID. Like, the left doesn't want to have that debate. They're never going to allow that debate. I think there's a lot of kind of incendiary tactics being used to smear him. I think he there's... did sign a law that restricts transgender care for adults as well as kids. Um, I have greater concerns about the six-week abortion ban. Tell me about that. You know, I think if he made it clear that he's a state's rights person and that he's not looking to kind of pass a national law in this regard, I would be less concerned. Not everyone in their Twitter orbit agrees on his tactics, but these three do think Florida's new six-week abortion ban is bad. I think that's dangerous. That's something that I cannot get behind. And I don't think that's going to bode well for his presidential campaign. I think that that might be a real impediment to bringing in moderate women. None of these women like the idea of a 2024 rematch between Biden and Trump. They're open to voting for DeSantis, but are not sold. So there's been criticism from Republicans that DeSantis is like too online, that his campaign is too influenced by stuff that's popping online, but like isn't affecting in pe people in real life. So someone struggling to pay their bills isn't thinking about pronouns. Is it possible that's true? Well, I don't think so. I've been down all over Florida and you know what they all say? He helped my business open up. He helped my kids go to school. The media just fixates on the culture war pieces. Is it possible that you're too online? Yes, for sure in the beginning, but not anymore. Do I need to fight with some random online? No. I would love to be off Twitter, but I feel like there are discussions that need to be had for all the bad that comes with it. There's also a good, and I've connected with all of these like-minded women who are not alt-right demons. They're moms who have been unseen and unheard. Ellie Reeve, CNN, Dallas. We've got our panel back with us, Natasha Alford and Joe Pinion. I uh, always love Ellie's pieces. What was your takeaway from watching that? Well, look, I, I think you saw a snapshot of a man who built a broad nonpartisan coalition and then engaged in a legislative session that in many ways marginalized himself with many of the people that had come to count on him as their champion. And so you listen to people talking about the six-week ban. You listen to people talking about uh, some of the things that happened in the legislative session that was supposed to be burnishing his record in anticipation of this launch. And I think that's reflected in the numbers where you saw this was a man that, again, 
first Republican going all the way back to Jeb Bush to win Miami-Dade, Florida in 20 years, is ahead of Trump in Iowa in December, uh, is effectively right on his heels nationally uh, in January. And now you see where he is now, down 30 points. And I think it is because of some women like the ones you just heard from who feel as if the person that there was their champion has now in many ways forgotten all the things they liked about him. Natasha, I've interviewed Moms for Liberty mothers, and they were very radicalized by the COVID era. This is a vulnerability for Democrats in, in, in certain respects. So what is the counter messaging that they've developed? Well, I mean, first, when I see that package, I just think that there have always been women in conservative movements in particular who are approaching politics from a personal lens, right? But also, a lot of the women in that package were not women of color, right? And so these women are coming from a privileged position in society, and they don't like uh, sort of being called out for that privilege. They don't like the ways in which they were, you know, they say that they were attacked on Twitter, but a lot of that um, is sort of a defensive reaction. And so they found community and other women who feel the same way that they do. Um, but again, it, it, it's sort of finding people who will repeat back what you've already believed. So but they're I, not I, lost to Democrats, right? They were just talking about abortion. They were talking about areas where they felt like, well, we, we don't feel quite comfortable with X, Y and Z that Republicans saying. So is that not some kind of opening? I think there's an opening, but also I just think that if you are willing to support Ron DeSantis, who has been so extreme, so harmful to so many different groups, right? Whether it be, uh, you know, students of color, uh, efforts for diversity and inclusion in the employment sense. I mean, all of those things to me signal that uh, there's potentially a lack of empathy, uh, a lack of seeing sort of the, the coalitions that the Democratic Party tries to build. And so, again, I just think that Many of those women reflect what we've seen in different moments in history in terms of women who come from a, a certain a perch of privilege, uh, being unwilling to give up that privilege and trying to find a, a spokesperson who will back up sort of their experience. All right, guys, stay with us. Uh, we're hanging out the entire day, whether you like it or not. <laughs> um, happening today, of course, Nathan's Famous Hot Dog Eating Contest. Oh, do you love? No? Okay. <laughs> Set to kick off in a matter of hours. The reigning champ, back to back to back to back to back. Reigning champ, Joey Chestnut, says he plans to at least try and break his record of eating 80 hot dogs. Is that even possible? We will discuss. Get excited. <laughs> but before we go to break. E.T. Home phone. A classic line from Spielberg. Now the Mars Ingenuity helicopter has also phoned home to Earth. The little chopper took off April 26, but lost contact with Mission Control. But it finally called on June 28, setting aside concerns about the first aircraft on another world. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. In 2021, you set the record, 76 hot dogs in 10 minutes. What are you shooting for in this one? Do you think you will win it again? Oh, I think I, I think I can pull off the win. And uh, if the conditions are right and I find a, a mean, nasty rhythm, uh, a record is possible. 80? Possible? 80 is possible. Oh, my God. I'm hitting practice. And, it, it's, and things would have to be perfect. And, you know, I'm not saying it's that. It, you know what? I'm uh it's possible. 
You know, those were two American legends, John Berman, <laughs> yeah, our colleague, exactly. and Joey Chestnut, the 15-time mustard belt championship holder of the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. Um, I think he had 63 hot dogs in 10 minutes, um, which for Ellie is like Tuesday, uh, to some degree. And this is obviously going to happen. And it's a little bit gross, yeah, I think, to some yeah. degree. So we brought in a panel but of legal experts. we want our panel of really political smart experts. political and legal people to weigh in, which is, you know, is the record of 80, Natasha, because I know you've spent a lot of time thinking about this, <laughs> his preparation, whether or not we could get there, is the record possible today? Um, I think that if you put your mind to it, if you've done it before, you can do it again. Um, I, I come from upstate New York where we have like Hoffman's hot dogs, so that is our thing. Yeah. And I know that if you love hot dogs enough, if you love the taste enough, you can push through and probably break that 80. So Mr. Chestnut, as he should be referred to, yeah. did sound a little doubtful in that interview whether he could hit 80. I mean, 76 was... That's like, your sort of inner prosecutor Can we talking. show the chart of the yeah. progression yeah. and why, like, yeah, this is a professionalized between Kobayashi and Joey Chestnut. Data. 1990, the winner had 15. 2025, 2010, 54. I believe that was the start of the Kobe, or the prime of Kobayashi yeah. era. 75, 2020. That's pretty amazing. He, well, I don't know. I, I think, People I think, find methods. Yeah, I think we've know? reached the limits of human capacity on this <laughs> Have one. Have we, though? Joe, right. is this disgusting or is this a wonderful American <laughs> Is it tradition? easier to get well, I lean towards the latter in a very sharp manner, but I, I can see the other. I, I think there was more palace intrigue when we had the kind of international element. Yeah. Was America going to retain the title <laughs> as the Nathan's yeah. hot dog epicenter of the world? Uh, look, I don't know. I can't imagine eating 76 hot dogs in a month, much less in 10 oh, minutes. Oh, well, so. we will help you because no. we have a graphic that oh, gives yeah. you a sense <laughs> actually, of what is the ideal body type. Can you possibly be awesome at this? <laughs> According to this, you need, a, and this is credit to the Washington Post, yes. short neck, long torso, wide rib cage, wide build. Yeah. See, so kids, if you're watching this and you see this exactly. as a <laughs> pursuit in the future, I did like the when Chestnut overtook Kobayashi yeah. and it was like America. America's oh, back. Yeah. This is not how I pictured our America First policy discussion, but I'm here for it. You kind of are, though, yeah. right? It's a, little, it's a little nicer, gentler, and we're winning still, and I appreciate that. Because that's what it's all about. Um, the best quote, by the way, from, from the interview, uh, Mr. Chestnut said, quote, I am not at all anti-vegetable. So. Oh. Well, he's going to need vegetables. He did a vegan cleanse. He's definitely <laughs> going to need some salad leaves after this. So All right, guys. Well, stay with us. We appreciate you having some fun with us. We've got a lot more coming up in the next hour. For the moment, though, a live look at Des Moines, Iowa, Plymouth, New Hampshire. Several Republican candidates are sweeping those states today. We're going to talk about the big ideas some of the candidates are pushing, like including ending birthright citizenship and raising the voting age. And later, just days after the Supreme Court gutted affirmative action from higher education, Harvard is facing a challenge to its legacy admissions process. We'll have more ahead. Good Tuesday morning, everyone. Adi Cornish joins me. I'm Phil Mattingly, and we are starting with breaking news. It's been developing throughout the course of the morning, last night into the morning. We're following now three mass shootings during a violent July 4th weekend. Breaking this morning, the death toll now rising in Fort Worth, Texas, where police say three people are now confirmed dead and eight others wounded in a shooting in a parking lot. In Philadelphia, police say a heavily armed gunman wearing body armor went on a shooting rampage through the city streets. At least five people were killed, two children injured, including a two-year-old toddler. 
Investigators say the suspect had an AR-15 style rifle, a handgun, a police scanner and multiple magazines of ammo packed in his body armor when police officers arrested him in an alley. Now, the hunt is still on for suspects in Baltimore after two people were killed and 28 wounded during a block party. We have team coverage on all the latest developments and the former police chief Charles Ramsey is standing by. But first, we're going to start with Danny Freeman in Philadelphia. Danny, what more have you learned about the suspect there? Well, Audie, we still have a number of questions about the suspect, especially the question of why this suspect decided to open fire at a residential community in southwest Philadelphia yesterday evening. Uh, what we do know is that the suspect is in his 40s. He was taken into custody. And of course, as you mentioned, he was carrying multiple weapons and armed with a bulletproof vest last night when he went on this shooting spree. I want to illustrate some of the things we do know also about how this all started. Everything kicked off at 8.30 last night. Philadelphia police got reports of multiple gunshots in the Kinksessing area of Philadelphia. Again, that's in the southwestern part of the city. Uh, and when officers arrived, they found there were multiple gunshot victims, but also they heard a number of gunshots still happening in the surrounding blocks. So officers ended up chasing after the sound of those gunshots. They found their suspect. They chased after their suspect and eventually were able to arrest him without incident and without firing a shot. But I just want to read off exactly what they found, what officers found when they were able to make that arrest. They found the man in questionnaire had a bulletproof vest, an AR-style rifle, a handgun, multiple magazines, and also a police scanner. Now, in the end, the police commissioner, Daniel Atlaw, last night, she told us that there were six shooting victims, two children who ultimately survived, but four people who were killed. But then overnight, we learned new information that a fifth person had been killed lightly in connection to this shooting. Uh, I should say one other person was also taken into custody. That person was suspected of picking up a gun and actually returning fire at the gunman. So he is not the primary suspect at this time. But again, Audie, like you said, a chaotic start to the 4th of July holiday, a day where otherwise Philadelphians are looking forward to concerts on the parkway and celebrating the birthplace of the nation. Once again, though, we're facing a shooting incident. Audie, back to you. Oh, sorry. Not just chaotic, but it cast a pall, right? We're talking about children being injured in this shooting as well. Um, do you, I don't know if the police said it said anything, but what is the mood in Philadelphia right now. Listen, Audie, the mood is tense. Uh, shootings happen often in Philadelphia. There's no question about that. But we usually don't see four or five people killed in one incident. And I should also say, last year, on the 4th of July, during one of the main concerts on the parkway, there was a high-profile shooting. The uh, theory was that somebody fired a gun into the air and a bullet actually hit an officer back on the parkway. So there is memories of that as we head into this holiday at this time. Audie. Danny Freeman, thank you. All right, we're going to bring in now CNN senior law enforcement analyst and former Philadelphia Police Commissioner Charles Ramsey. Uh, Commissioner Ramsey, I think holidays are always a concern, uh, particularly summer holidays are a concern for law enforcement. It's the details of this case in terms of the suspect who was arrested uh, that I think are a little bit jarring this morning, uh, having body armor, having magazines tucked into the body armor, police scanner, an AR-style weapon. Um, when you see and hear that, what do you think about what actually happened here? Well, another thing that's unusual about that is the fact he's 40 years old. I mean, usually the uh, suspect is a bit younger than that. But, you know, nothing seems to surprise me much anymore. Uh, but one thing I do want to really highlight that the reporter did point out 
And that is those police officers were able to take this guy into custody without using force, without firing not a single shot. Now, here's a guy with body armor, heavily armed, AR-15. And we talk all the time about officers' use of force uh, that really doesn't go consistent with policy. Here's an example of officers that really, really did an excellent job that just needs to be highlighted. But this is also just, I mean, this is the world we're in now. Whenever you have a large gathering of people, block party or whatever, uh, you're always concerned about somebody showing up with a gun and just indiscriminately firing into a crowd. And you wind up with dead people. You wind up with seriously injury, injured people. You wind up with traumatized children, all those things. And it's it's ridiculous. And it's not going to stop. I was just going to ask, in your view, is this an acceleration or is this, you know, I feel like summer block party type situations have long been an issue I've talked to law enforcement officials about that have been concerning where where elements of what you're describing can happen and have happened over time. Why is now different or perhaps worse? Well, I don't know if it's, that, if it's different is worse because of the types of weapons that we're talking about now, AR-15s and semi-automatics that really can spray a high number of bullets in a very short period of time. And that obviously increases the number of people that you're having to deal with that have been shot, seriously uh, injured. Uh, but I was a major city chief for 17 years, and we always dreaded those holidays, especially in the summertime, because we knew that we were probably going to have an uptick in violence. Uh, so that goes back. That's That part is not recent. But what is recent is the number of uh, these kind of assault weapons that are on the streets that are being used on a consistent basis, not just on holidays, but every single day of the year they're being used. And, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, guns and laws to contain guns. The one thing that's often not discussed, some of these guys need to be in prison. They need to be locked up. They need to be off the street. If you use a gun to commit a violent crime, you need some jail time. And oftentimes that just isn't happening. You know, they're being released right back on onto the street. Uh, they're not being, um, um, you know, held accountable. Uh, for these crimes. And it's not going to stop. Charles Ramsey, I want to bring in another person to this conversation, Ed Lavendera, who is in Fort Worth, Texas. Now, the shooting there last night left at least three dead, eight others injured. Ed, what more are you learning about what happened? Well, it's still early and we're trying to figure out exactly what led up to this particular shooting. But as you mentioned, 11 people shot and killed here on the streets of southwest Fort Worth, where you can see out here the remnants of the fireworks and Fourth of July celebrations that were going out here, going on here last night on the streets. But right now, police say of those 11 people that were shot here just before midnight central time in southwest Fort Worth, three of those victims have died. Most of them adults. There is a juvenile uh, who is a victim, but we're still waiting a word from investigators as to whether or not they have been able to track down uh, any suspects or what might have been some of the details and the, the causes that led to the eruption of this uh, shooting here in this neighborhood last night. Uh, but but clearly, uh, you know, the, the, this is uh, coming on, on the heels of, of the remnants of a uh, of pre-4th of July celebration here on Monday night uh, and police and, and neighbors here in this this particular neighborhood kind of uh, waking up to uh, this particular news. We talked to a couple of gentlemen who said that the, they live several blocks away um, and they didn't hear any of, of the gunfire going off. So many of the people walking the streets here this early morning uh, still trying to figure out exactly how, what all unfolded here last night and what led up to it.
All right, Ed Lavendera for us in Fort Worth. Ed, we appreciate the hustle getting out there and getting the new report and keep us posted throughout the course of the day. I do want to ask Chief Ramsey if we still have him, Commissioner Ramsey, if we still have him, one final question, um, which is, you know, should people be taking this into account when they go to Fourth of July celebrations? I think there's always a concern of making fear a driving factor here, but like this is a reality. We've seen it. We saw it uh, in Illinois, I believe, last year. Uh, is this something people need to be thinking about when they take their families out to events today? Well, unfortunately, people need to be aware of their surroundings, and they do need to be aware that these kinds of things uh, can happen. I don't want people to stay home and not celebrate holidays, but this is a new reality. But what people also need to do is put pressure on their elected officials to actually do something other than provide thoughts and prayers. If that worked, we would be the safest country on the planet if prayers by themselves work. You have to have action. You have to have long-term strategies to deal with a lot of the drivers of crime. I hear, you know, poverty, education, all those sorts of things. But if you use a gun to commit a crime, you need to go to jail, period. And there has to be strong consequences. And we got to stop thinking we can save everybody. We have some very violent people on the streets of our city, and they are going to continue to harm others until we take them off the streets of our city, period. I mean, it, this is this crazy. We keep talking about the same thing over and over again and wonder why it doesn't change. And it doesn't change because we don't change. All right, Commissioner Charles Ramsey, thanks. We had Ed Lavendera in Texas, Danny Freeman in Philadelphia. We'll keep you guys updated on those stories throughout the course of the day. Turning now to the race for the White House, Ron DeSantis, Mike Pence, Tim Scott, and other GOP presidential hopefuls are hitting the campaign trail on this 4th of July. Omar Jimenez is in Merrimack, New Hampshire, where three candidates are set to participate in the same parade. Omar, what is it looking like today? Yeah, Adi, well, look, if you've got presidential candidates in a, in a march, in a parade, then you know it is campaign season, and that is what we are going to see here today. Uh, in Merrimack, New Hampshire, we've got uh, a 4th of July parade where we're going to see Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, former Texas Congressman uh, Will Hurd, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, and then more people, of course, coming over the course of the day. And Yes, it's to celebrate Fourth of July, but it is also to campaign. What is more American than that? And over in Iowa, we're going to have uh, former Vice President Mike Pence uh, and former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson. So all of these candidates are going to be out and about. And when you look at the reality of this field right now, it really has been former President Donald Trump against the rest of the pack. And polling has reflected that up to this point. Uh, the latest CNN poll has showed 47 percent for Donald Trump. The next closest is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and the spokesperson for DeSantis or for a pro DeSantis super PAC uh, never backed down, even admitted they are way behind in the polling, that they feel this race is winnable. But take a listen to their spokesperson at what they feel has been a major factor and at least recent support for the president. Clearly, Donald Trump is the is the runaway front runner, uh, particularly since the indictments. That was not the case before the indictments. It is the case afterwards. And it is understandable that a lot of folks want to rally to him. And even with that dynamic, they still do feel that this race is winnable from their perspective. But obviously, when you look around, there's a lot of work to be done. And even I came out here after uh, former President Trump was indicted in Florida over the alleged mishandling of classified documents. I spoke to some of his supporters just to see if maybe they would be swayed one way or another by those pretty damning allegations. And if anything, they were emboldened. And that's the dynamic that a lot of these candidates are dealing with here. And we're going to see. 
if they can at least begin to start making up some of that ground on this 4th of July. All right, Omar Jimenez, enjoy the parade. Well, coming up, we'll talk about some of the big policy ideas. It's not a big policy campaign so far, but there are policies that GOP candidates are pushing, including one that may actually be unconstitutional. That's ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. On America's Independence Day, the two Republican presidential frontrunners are on a campaign to end a fundamental right afforded to people born in this country, birthright citizenship. Now, the 14th Amendment, ratified in 1868 after the Civil War, states all persons born or naturalized in the U.S. and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. So it was included to make sure formerly enslaved Americans and their descendants would be citizens. Recently, Governor Ron DeSantis has argued this, that dangling the prize of citizenship to the future offspring of illegal immigrants is a major driver of illegal migration. It's also inconsistent with the original understanding of the 14th Amendment. We will force the courts and Congress to finally address this failed policy. Now, this is something DeSantis and his rival, former President Donald Trump, actually see eye to eye on. On day one of my new term in office, I will sign an executive order making clear to federal agencies that under the correct interpretation of the law, going forward, the future children of illegal aliens will not receive automatic U.S. citizenship. Yeah, it was something former President Trump considered while he was in the White House, never actually moved it forward or tried to. And that reality was in stark contrast to past Independence Days, where we saw Presidents George W. Bush, Barack Obama presiding over naturalization ceremonies for new Americans. You can see it there back in 2008 and 2012. Our panel is back with us right now. CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig, Republican strategist Joe Pinion, and CNN political analyst uh, Natasha Alford. Uh, Ellie, I want to start with the legal here, because I think that we can kind of build out and extrapolate on the, the politics to some degree. The, the word uh, original intent in the DeSantis statement, I feel like, has, is intentionally loaded to some degree to try and make a point. For people who are looking at this, listening to what Audie just read off of the actual text... Is there actual legal ambiguity here? No, there's no legal ambiguity whatsoever. It says all persons born in the United States are citizens. And when Ron DeSantis talks about the original intent back when this was passed after the Civil War, there were people who were benefiting from that in 1868. There were people coming into this country and having first generation here. So that was the original intent. All of this, by the way, I just want to make clear, this is constitutional amendment fantasy land. It's a political device. Even if there was some meaningful argument against it, you would have to amend the Constitution. Here's what that takes. Two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate, and three-quarters of the states. The states have to call special constitutional assemblies. That is just not going to happen. Democrats do this to an extent. Let's get rid of the Electoral College. Let's get rid of life tenure for federal judges. Gavin so, Newsom has a uh, proposed constitutional amendment on guns. Yeah, which will never pass. It's, it's political posturing. But I do think it's important because birthright citizenship is so fundamental to what we do here. This is going nowhere. This is a political talking point. 
legally it has no traction whatsoever. And even in 2018, when Donald Trump first brought up this idea, he suggested removing it through executive yeah, right. order, right? <laughs> right? Which is something that you just can't do. So you can so, hear the White House legal counsel being like, <laughs> right, oh, just, no. you know, just Why sort of throwing, throwing their hands in the air. So it, it is a political tool. And it is important to acknowledge that even when birthright citizenship was offered to African-Americans, there was resistance, right? There were movements that wanted African-Americans to leave the country uh, and to settle somewhere else. Native Americans were resettled, so to speak. And so there, there's always um, sort of a push and pull in terms of advocating for rights. It did not come easily. When it comes to what I would call kind of perpetual messaging, right, something like this, which comes up several Congresses in a row, can you talk about who the constituency is for it? Who does it appeal to? Well, look, I think that this is the inevitable political posturing that comes from the paralysis of our D.C. body politic, but also comes from our refusal to actually deal with uh, kind of the underlying issue, which is that we do have problems on the border, securing the border, which is that we do have a migrant crisis in this country. And so I think, you know, to Natasha's point, yes, this is a fundamental aspect of who we are. Certainly you will alienate more voters than you will bring in voters by having this type of message of saying that you're going to uh, get rid of something that seems to be a sacrosanct practice in this country. The remedy to trying to implement this kind of extrajudicial process uh, seems to be legally dubious at best. But I do think, again, all of these issues, again, this will inevitably, if it does happen, end up at the Supreme Court because we seem to have decided the Supreme Court is going to carry the burdens of society for politicians that effectively refuse to do their job and deal with the underlying causes of these problems that Americans are rightfully pointing to. When we talk about big ideas in the Republican primary, um, I struggle sometimes to see where the policy actually sticks out and is important. And that, I'm not saying that in a pejorative manner to Republican primary voters. I think that's the reality. But, you know, you think back to the 2020 Democratic primary and it was, I mean, everyone was going bigger and more progressive and more dramatic in terms of systemic change on climate, on health care, on everything. And I think that was the reason Joe Biden ended up winning that primary to some degree. On the Republican side, do, do you have a sense policy-wise of where the party is actually moving right now? Well, look, I think there is a certain level of intellectual staleness in our, the entirety of our politics. I would push back a little bit about what happened with Joe Biden, because I think inevitably, yes, certainly there were candidates that were talking about climate. Certainly there were issues we're talking about progressive issues on health care. But in the end, we have reverted back to the norm. I think. Oh, that's why the, I think he won. Right. Because think, he didn't follow that. Right. Path. And I think part of the reason why you see uh, a dampered enthusiasm across the board for this type of Trump versus Biden rematch is because of the absence of the kind of unexplored idea at a time when we need those unexplored ideas the most from education, where we see, again, the educational deficits uh, just widening. You know, we've got public schools that are in crisis. We've got, again, a border crisis. So I, I would agree with you that we there, there is an appetite from the American people and even within the Republican primary uh, to see somebody come out with what is that bold idea for how we're going to deal with the threat of China? What is that bold idea to figure out how we're going to both leverage the advantages that AI can provide and also deal with the eminent threats that those things are going to be causing. And I think even on the issue of climate, when you look at the policies that have been put forth by a Biden administration that effectively, in some cases, make the earth a dirtier place, when you see effectively moratoriums being had on nuclear energy, when we see people pushing back on natural gas at a time we know if we're trying to hit these environmental objectives, uh, you need both of those tools at your disposal to be able to hit those emission reductions. So I think there is plenty of oxygen in the room for somebody willing to 
enter the fray and talk about those. But I think, again, with President Trump sucking up all the oxygen, with what you see on the left with them circling the wagons against around Joe Biden and really preventing the conversation from occurring, lots of these things that America is in dire need of are not going to come to the forefront. Joe, to your point about intellectual staleness, the theme that I see with the ideas that are being proposed are about limiting Right. Rather than expanding and sort of welcoming in, it's about limiting. Vivek uh, Ramaswani proposing that we raise the voting age to 25. Not only is it just ridiculous, it, it, it blocks out a large number of young people, for example, in college who would come out and vote. It, it feels like it is an attack uh, on the American ideal of inviting in and sort of raising the bar similar in the way to you know, how Jim Crow laws work to implement literacy tests and tell people that, you know, you could not participate in this process if you don't meet a certain standard. It, it's about blocking. No, I, I agree with you. And I think when you have these sort of bumper sticker slogans and birthright citizenship, it, it undermines the meaningful discussion that you're both talking about with actual policy. Natasha Alford, Joe Pinion and Ellie, thank you so much for being with us. Appreciate it, guys. All right, we have live images right now out of Tel Aviv, Israel, where a car rammed into pedestrians and what police are calling a terrorist attack. We're going to take you live to the scene. Coming up next. And welcome back. This is just into CNN. Live images out of Tel Aviv, Israel, where a car just rammed through pedestrians outside a shopping center. Officials say the driver then proceeded to get out of the vehicle and stab civilians with a sharp object before he was killed by police. CNN's Hadass Gold is live on the scene. Hadass, what can you tell us right now? Yeah, so what's going on right now, there's a bit of a commotion, and that's because Itamar Ben-Gvir, he is the national security minister, one of the more right-wing members of this Israeli government, has just arrived on the scene to survey what's happened here. So we are in northeast Tel Aviv, and what we see here, according to witnesses, is that a car came driving up this street, rammed into pedestrians. You can see uh, the, the truck behind the groups of people, uh, behind the groups of people, the groups of police here standing. You can see the truck that rammed into the pedestrians. You can see that it damaged this bus stop quite badly. According to police and according to witnesses we have spoken to, the driver, after ramming into the pedestrians, got out of the car, then tried to stab some of the people around before he himself was shot and killed by an armed civilian. Now, the reason you're hearing a lot of noise here is because you have both Ben Gvir's supporters and Ben Gvir's opponents, because this Ben Gvir's opponents all coming at the same time, both yelling, some in support, some in opposition of him. He has called for being much harder against who he calls terrorists. He has called for the death penalty for terrorists. Now, what we know so far uh, regarding the attacker is that Hamas has claimed the attacker as one of its fighters. Keep in mind that after this, on, as this part of this ongoing uh, operation in Janine, in the occupied West Camp, the Israeli military is still there. Uh, Hamas has called on all of its members. We're being pushed a little bit by police here. Hamas has called on all of its members to strike Israel wherever they can. And we have confirmation now that this driver of this car who then tried to stab pedestrians is a member of Hamas. Hamas, the militant group, claiming him as one of their fighters in the last few minutes. Police calling this a terror attack. And it seems as though Hamas, when they were praising this attack, 
saying that it's in direct relation and a direct response to what has been happening in Janine over the last two days. Janine still in active military operation, according to the Israeli military, and they say that they will be there now for at least another day, potentially even longer, guys. All right, Hadass Gold live on the scene in Tel Aviv. Take care of yourself, your photojournalist. We appreciate the reporting, Hadass. Coming up on the heels of the Supreme Court's affirmative action ruling, advocacy groups are now taking aim at legacy admissions at Harvard. We'll speak to one of the people taking action next. Good morning. Harvard faces a new challenge to its admissions program, this time over legacy seats. It comes on the heels of last week's Supreme Court decision to end affirmative action policies at colleges and universities. In a complaint to the Department of Education, a civil rights group alleges Harvard's process discriminates against students of color by giving an unfair boost to the mostly white children of alumni, which the suit claims violates the Civil Rights Act. In part, the complaint reads, for the period of 2014 through 2019, the acceptance rate for donor-related applicants was approximately 42 percent, or about seven times higher than the acceptance rate for an applicant with no donor relation. Joining us now is Executive Director for the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Economic Justice, Ivan Espinoza Madrigal. And first, I want to talk about this complaint. It almost feels inevitable, given how people started to talk about legacy seats in the aftermath of the affirmative action ruling. Um, what is the goal here? Are you trying to get back to the Supreme Court? Thank you very much for having me this morning. And just to clarify, my organization rebranded a few years ago. We are just lawyers for civil rights and we're based in Boston and happy to be bringing this important case on behalf of students of color who will be disproportionately excluded and affected by the recent developments in the Supreme Court. Last week, the Supreme Court gave us a narrow but exceedingly narrow opportunity to move forward with race conscious admissions at colleges and universities in the Harvard case. Yvonne, I want to jump in here. Are you saying that uh, were you looking at that ruling and seeing an in to talk about legacy seats? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm looking at that ruling and seeing that universities are going to go back to adjust what they're doing to be in compliance with the latest Supreme Court guidance. And in this new landscape, it is critical for us to push for the elimination of donor-based and legacy-based admissions preferences. It's nearly 28% of the class at Harvard. If we didn't have it, more students of color would be there. Yvonne, can I ask you, you, in the complaint, I think there's kind of six requests or, or six specific asks of the Department of Education in terms of uh, an investigation into the admissions practices, certain declarations related to legacy preferences. Is that uh, kind of how you seek to resolve this? What's the pathway forward in terms of trying to address what this complaint uh, brings to bear? The most important thing here is to find ways to make sure that students are not being assigned preferences, given bonus points, been extra consideration. Right, but which, way, which ways are you thinking? Like with, the, with their donor status, with their 
uh, alumni affiliations. That's how they're getting the preference. No, no, I understand that. Which ways do you want to try and address that based on, you know, the six that were laid out in the complaint? Or do you want to, Audie's point, try and take this up to uh, a higher court at some point? What's kind of the process here, I guess, is what I'm asking. We are going to eliminate the ability of students to identify a donor affiliation or family affiliation so that they could get brownie points to get into Harvard. That is unfair. It's also discriminatory. We're currently in the Department of Education. If we are to do this work and do it right, we also have to keep all legal options on the table, including going into federal court, going into other advocacy and other types of protections that will allow students of color to thrive on college campuses despite the Supreme Court's best efforts. We heard from the Yale admissions uh, director a few months back saying that that the government should not intrude on the shape and culture and character of a campus, that they consider this opening the door to other kinds of intrusion. Um, How are you starting to think about that kind of pushback from schools going forward? As the Supreme Court has noted, the importance is the ability to have access to the admissions process without preferences. That is precisely what we are doing here. We are taking the Supreme Court at its word. There should be no preferences, particularly preferences that run along donor and legacy lines, which is not merit-based. Let's be clear. Your last name or the size of your bank account are not merit, should not be a part of the admissions process. And yet nearly one-third of Harvard consists of students, students who would otherwise not be there. That excludes other students. It excludes even low-income students. It excludes students of color. We're talking about fairness here. And if the Supreme Court is going to eliminate or try to significantly reduce race-conscious admissions as part of a holistic process, it is critical that we also assess barriers and structures that benefit overwhelmingly white people and white affluent people at that. It is the donors. It is the legacy affiliations which have to be eliminated if the Supreme Court wants an even and level playing field. We need to play fair. And that means bringing an end to the type of bonus and preference that is given to rich students and students with family affiliations. All right. Ivana Espinosa Madrigal, I think this is going to be a pretty important issue. A lot of people are watching going forward. Appreciate your time, sir. Thank you very much. Now, another story. A hidden camera system was discovered inside the women's locker room at the West Virginia State Police Academy. CNN sat down exclusively with two of the women who say they were spied on. Every female that has gone through that academy, civilian or for law enforcement training, is a victim. How many are we talking here? There could be thousands. Hundreds, if not thousands. And now a CNN exclusive. The West Virginia State Police is being accused of fostering a culture of misconduct toward women in its ranks, including the placement of a hidden video camera inside a woman's locker and shower room. The revelation coming in a newly filed civil lawsuit. The suit alleges that male officers at the police training facility looked in on the women over a decade. CNN's Bryn Greengrass sat down exclusively with two of the women who claimed they were spied on. 
That's all I wanted to do my entire life was to be in law enforcement. And now that you know, I'm going on 13 years this year and I, I can't even view law enforcement the same as I have. Megan Talkington and Brenda Lesnett, active law enforcement in the state of West Virginia, their dream job, but now everything has changed. I don't want my daughter to walk the halls of the West Virginia State Police Academy, not unless there's reform from top to bottom. Both women now suing the agency that trained them after an anonymous letter written to top state officials, including the governor and lawmakers, went public in February, alleging widespread misconduct within the walls of the West Virginia State Police Academy, including a hidden camera system inside the women's locker room. I was shocked to hear that happened. I was completely appalled. And the more I thought about it, the angrier I got. Sitting here today, I still feel exposed. And I'm constantly wondering who's going to see me next, who has already seen me. It's very nerve wracking. Those thoughts are just constantly in your mind. Yes. Am I going to have to deal with this the rest of my life? 10 years from now, is this going to show up on the dark, re on the dark web, on the regular web? I don't know. I'm Every female that has gone through that academy, civilian or for law enforcement training, is a victim. How many are we talking here? Possibly there could be thousands. Hundreds, if not thousands. It's a hostile, misogynistic, toxic environment that's not just male-dominated, it's anti-woman. Attorney Teresa Torseva represents about 70 women who have similar allegations, including minors who took part in a junior program at the academy. I don't know how, how in the world many things could be much, much worse than that. The state doesn't dispute a camera existed. This is how Governor Jim Justice publicly addressed it in March. There was three troopers that found a thumb drive. And absolutely from that, they found the video. And then, from what I understand, one, if not all, you know, immediately jerked a thumb drive out and threw it in the floor and started stomping on it. Justice replaced the head of the agency and pinned the act on a high-ranking academy official who died in 2016. You don't think he was the only one responsible? Common sense tells you he wasn't the only one responsible. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. And it feels like you're blaming somebody who can't speak for themselves. Torres Ava's team names three current and former state police employees who they say are responsible for the recordings in a recently filed civil lawsuit. The first in what will be a long list of similar civil action taken. It's a risk you guys are taking to file a lawsuit while you're still working. What do you fear? I fear retaliation. I feel I fear Brenda and I are going to have a target on our backs. There are two open state investigations. We're going to clean it up. Where those stand, unclear. We reached out to Justice's office and the West Virginia Department of Homeland Security and got no response. The state police said no comment. Officials haven't reached out to the alleged victims either. Crickets. It's disheartening. It is outrageous. I feel like this hasn't been taken seriously. I think that there needs to be more investigation, a more thorough investigation, and I think that we all want answers. Bringing Grass, CNN, Charleston, West Virginia. Important reporting from Bryn there. Now, we also have a new retail survey that made in America means actually paid in America. Why being patriotic is paying off. Plus, we're going to bring you the secret to grilling the perfect burger. Burger scholar George Motz will join us live next. Uh, wait. Uh,
And a reminder, CNN's July 4th special returns tonight with an all-star lineup. Watch CNN's The Fourth in America live at 7 Eastern on CNN. We'll be right back with Burgers. I think it's safe to say flags, Americana, very popular on Independence Day. Oh, you got American flag shirts, pants, all the things. But where are these items actually made? That might be even more important. According to a new survey, American-made products are actually having their best year yet. Let's bring in CNN's Rahel Solomon. Um, morning, why? So what it seems to be is that people are prioritizing U.S. jobs, where they're created, where they're protected, protecting American jobs. So this report from Morning Consult essentially says that when asked why you buy American, that's what people cite, U.S. jobs. Uh, 65% of U.S. consumers say that they actually prioritize buying American over the last year. What's interesting is that when you look under the hood of this, you actually see some interesting trends among uh, political affiliations, among different age groups. So Republicans tend to be slightly more enthusiastic than independents and Democrats, uh, baby boomers more uh, more patriotic and, and spending more American than some of the other groups. Uh, what I thought was really interesting is that despite the last year with higher prices, of course, which we've talked about so much, with higher rates, uh, the demand for American has remained steady. Uh, really quickly, Jason McMahon, who runs political analysis at Morning Consult, said despite the hit to consumers' wallets that purchasing made in America goods can entail due to their higher input costs, the share of those seeking out goods, such as uh, from uh, foreign-made equivalents, rather, has held steady over the past year or so. Uh, there's that. I will say there is a bit of a sweet spot. 10% is, is about the limit that people are willing to spend more for American uh, versus foreign-made goods. Interesting. All right. Stay with us. Yes. This is what I've been looking for. It's also this. made in America. I'm very excited. Hamburgers. I actually brought <laughs> Nothing brought says July 4th. Hamburgers on the grill. Uh, and so joining us here, of course, is George Motes, who is a burger scholar, which is an official thing. Um, from the Hamburglar University here. And um, <laughs> so talk to us a little bit about the proper July 4th burger. What are the sort of key things for what you have deemed the hamburger uh, architecture? Oh, architecture is very important because, I mean, you, first of all, we want to keep it simple. I, people tend to think, oh, you've got to put a lot of ingredients on there, lots of, you know, uh, condiments. And keeping it simple is the most important uh, way to create a great burger. And also, if you have to make a lot of them, you're talking about more ingredients. It gets, too, it gets too complicated when you have too many ingredients. So and it's very important to make sure you're ready to cook also, which is important that people forget about that. You, know, you have to make sure you have all the stuff ready to go and so you can cook and um, make magic. Wait, so wait, we have a, um, we have <laughs> some, a helpful tip there about <laughs> what's going on. Um, does it matter like what bread, what lettuce? Like do you have thoughts about that? No, I mean, to me, you just have to keep it simple. Fresh, fresh meat is very important. Fresh meat is important. Also, American cheese. There's nothing wrong with American cheese. American cheese is designed, it's, it's engineered to melt on a burger. It's very important. Um, the Smash Burger is kind of having a moment right now. Uh, sure is. People think it's a new trend. It's, right, but it's, it's not. No, it's not at all. It's been around for, I read, it's actually, I read it in you your read book. it in your, my book. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> He's an avid reader. <laughs> it's actually, it goes back to the dawn of the hamburger. In the beginning, the hamburgers were made by smashing ball, little balls, you know, portion balls of meat. So people think it's a trend. It actually is the original way to make a hamburger. And it was, it was designed based on speed. I was fascinated by the idea that you said it's the method, not the ingredients. That makes exactly. the like madness. And you pointed out a poached burger, uh, yeah, which sounds exactly. horrendous. <laughs> like, is that boiled meat? What's the situation? Well, it is actually. Think about it. It's, it's cooked in water. But the water is also, there's a place in, in Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin, called Pete's. And Pete's, they take a ton of 
cut onions and throw it into the water. So it's kind of like an onion water. It's, it's basically, a, it's a poached burger. It's, it sounds a little odd, but it tastes fantastic. It works? Oh, it's actually, yeah, definitely, absolutely. Once you have all that, all that rendered beef fat floating in the water, I mean, you can't go wrong. So I know simplicity is key, but I have to wonder, what's the most popular burger? So I'm, I'm not about the simplicity. I'm about the caramelized onions, the blue cheese, the mushrooms. Messy, like, messy. Let's, just, let's just put it all on there. But what tends to be most popular? The most popular for sure is just meat, bun, cheese. That's it. And then you can do whatever you want to it at that point, but pretty much all you really crave and what I call the daily beater, the one you're going to want to return to is the, is the meat bunchies. Yeah, well, we want to drag you into the culture wars, which is what we do here. So there have got to be some controversial <laughs> toppings, okay? Oh, yeah, I said sure. blue cheese. This guy gave me a hard time in my email. No, so. I, I was, I'm not anti-blue cheese. It was the mushrooms. I, like, I'm not a mushroom guy. People like mushrooms, mushrooms Which is not amazing. a personal thing. It's Actually, like can a we put, yeah, okay, so here's Audie's burger. You're looking at Audie's burger. <laughs> okay. Bun, okay, my cheese. burger looks so much better than that. Let me just patty. say. There's mine. Wait. Bun, yeah, pickles, burger pet. First off, See, you didn't put me, what I have in no, my burger. No like, oh, thank you on the ketchup. No ketchup. Okay, so give me the deal. People like ketchup on a burger. That's fine. I don't personally like it because it's too sweet. It's just oh. what I grew up with. I it sort really of struts the blue different. cheese. The, the ketchup is what gives it that like that sweetness, you know, the, that cuts no, the blue cheese. No, fail. This is your maximalism <laughs> showing, right? Uh, you're just like, put it all on. Ask before we go, <laughs> sure. if you're prepping the grill and you're thinking about making burgers, you said architecture, simplicity. Is there any other one tip that people have to know before they put on their American flag bandana and their, you know, and, and clean the World grill. War Champions <laughs> t-shirt? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, people, actually cooking over a flame grill is one of the hardest ways to make a burger. One of the easiest ways to make a burger is on a flat top. So if you really have, a, you know, you're having trouble, you know, getting the burger temperature correct, yeah. I say take a flat, take a, a, a skillet and put it onto the grill and then cook. You slide it off into the hot spot and the cold spot and just cook it inside of a pan on the grill. And you, you will not fail. You solved a lot of problems there here, George Mills. Welcome, America. George <laughs> yeah, Mills, the book is the great you. American burger book. We appreciate it, sir. Happy July 4th. CNN News Central out. starts now. <laughs> CNN News Central it starts <laughs> I right now. Have a wonderful 4th of beat July, Beat the folks. burger. Thanks, folks. <laughs> that is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.